Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. When we start to delve deeper into these more esoteric philosophies, you know, it's really easy to pick those apart and look for evidence at the surface level to discount or discredit this idea that we're all one. Okay, well, if we're all one, then why are people killing each other? If we're all one, then why is there so much suffering in the world? Who would choose to be sex trafficked if reincarnation was an actual thing? or if spirits were an actual thing, or if karma was an actual thing, who would choose to have some of these really horrible experiences? Who wouldn't want to be a billionaire and be comfortable and have a mansion and fleet of Ferraris and chauffeurs and assistants and you know, all of the things that we now equate with success in our society? Hey friend, welcome back to the Light Watkins show where I interview ordinary folks just like you and me who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith in the direction of their path, their purpose, or what they've identified as their mission. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact and inspire the lives of many other people who've either heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or people who have directly benefited from their work. And today we have a solo episode where I am going to talk about the power of story. There was an incident that happened to me when I was just a young child that made me realize how powerful stories are. And I want to share that experience with you in this episode. But I'm also sure that similar things have happened with you as well. Maybe as a child or as a teenager, as a young adult, you bought into a story that As a mature adult, you now are able to question. And when we realize that we've been misled by a story as an adult, the tendency is to discount or even reject all of the stories as BS or fake news. But the other way we can go with it is we can use stories to empower ourselves and to begin creating the type of life that we ultimately want to live. Because scientifically speaking, There's this thing called the placebo effect, which is really just a story. And it's reported to be, get this, 40% effective, which means that merely believing that something is possible, even without any evidence, physical or otherwise, that it's actually possible, will make it 40% more likely to happen, which is crazy. But that's the power of story. And by the way, We don't have a choice in whether we use a story or we don't use stories because everything is a story. And it's kind of like what Henry Ford said, whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, you're right because it's a story you're telling yourself. We can even make the argument that the reason you're doing whatever you're doing today, work-wise, relationship-wise, personally, is because of a story you've either told yourself or a story that you bought into about how people 
like you with your dreams, with your goals, with your desires should be spending their time. And I'm doing the same thing, right? No one is immune to the power of story. But when we become aware of this power, we do get to choose which narrative fits our dreams and desires. And then from there, we can hopefully start to tell ourselves different stories, more aligned stories, stories that serve us and help us to become the best version of ourselves. So that's what I'm going to be talking about in this episode. We'll do a deep dive into the subject of story. And through that exploration, maybe, hopefully, you'll be in a better position to upgrade whatever story you've been using in your own life to serve you in the best way possible. All right. So let's get into it. We're going to talk about the power of story. Hey everybody, we're back with a solo episode. Just me, no guest. Just me sitting here in my living room in Mexico City. As always, I want to set the scene to start with. As you may know, I was on a meditation teaching tour these past couple of months and got a chance to teach meditation in Los Angeles, in Austin. I was in New York. I was in London. I was in Cabo. By the way, never go to Cabo in July. It's way too hot. But the teaching experiences were as meaningful and deep and rich as they always are. And it's something that I don't take for granted that I'm able to do something like that and help to transform people by giving them these tools that I've been able to benefit from for many years now. So deeply, deeply grateful for that. And in today's solo episode, I want to talk about the power of story. Over the years, I've been evolving my own teaching in giving less information and telling more stories and seeing how the power of the story leads to a greater degree of retention in the people that I get a chance to work with. If you just tell them a story about how someone has experienced a mantra or the practice of meditation or a metaphor related to the practice, I oftentimes talk about the metaphor of swimming as it relates to how to navigate through your mind. It's just a lot easier for people to grasp onto the concept that they should not fight their thoughts. Instead, you want to operate in concert with thinking mind in the same way that when you're in the water, you don't want to fight the water because when you fight the water, you will drown 100% of the time. And one of the reasons why people feel like they're drowning in their thoughts while meditating is because they are fighting the mind. And it's the whole adage of what you resist will persist. So we spent a good part of the training just talking about the nature of the mind and accepting the thinking mind as a correct outcome of the meditation practice, et cetera, et cetera. So when I get into the swimming analogy and I tell a couple stories about my own personal experiences of learning how to swim when I was in my 30s and things like that, people get it a lot easier and you can see the light turn on in their eyes. And I'm always reminded of, oh, okay, I need to tell more stories. I need to tell more stories. But it goes a lot deeper than that. And that's what I wanted to talk to you all about today because we're all telling ourselves stories all the time. And if you're having lots of difficulty in your life and lots of suffering in your life, there's a good chance that 
a lot of that suffering is the direct byproduct of the stories you're telling yourself. And if you're having a more positive, optimistic outlook on life, that's also a direct outcome of the stories that you've been conditioned to tell yourself. So I want to look at that today. And I want to start by talking about something that happened to me when I was like seven or eight years old. So as you may know, I'm from Alabama, from Montgomery, Alabama. My mom is actually from Chicago. And every blue moon, we would go to Chicago in the summer to visit her family. And the most direct path to Chicago from Montgomery, Alabama is to take Interstate 65 North. And that takes you through cities like Birmingham, Huntsville, I believe Nashville, and then up through Lexington, Kentucky, and then Cincinnati, and then Indianapolis, and then Gary, Indiana, and then eventually you arrive in Chicago. And the whole thing was like, I don't know, I think it's like a 12-hour drive. So if you left at 8 o'clock in the morning, you get there by 8 or 9 o'clock at night. So anyways, we're on one of our family vacations, driving our family car, which is a light green Chevrolet Caprice Classic. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. And it's my mom and my three brothers and I, I can't remember where my dad was at the time, but it was just us driving up there. And this is not the most exciting part of America, I-65. So for the most part, you're passing fireworks outlets, you're passing strip malls, Dairy Queens, and things like that. Lots of Bible quotes on billboards. And so the trip started off pretty uneventfully. And as we made our way through Alabama, through Tennessee, and eventually getting into Kentucky, we started seeing these billboards for the birthplace of Abraham Lincoln. And 
every couple of miles be another billboard. You know, do you want to go see Lincoln's birthplace? It's coming up in 10 miles. Take exit number, whatever, exit 50. And then a couple more minutes. The birthplace of Abraham Lincoln is coming up in three miles, exit number 50. And so my mom decides to pull my brothers and I to find out if we want to go see Abraham Lincoln's birthplace. Now, I'm not necessarily a history buff at seven or eight years old. I obviously am familiar with Abraham Lincoln. You know, he was described as one of the greatest American presidents. He was the president who created the Emancipation Proclamation. He was credited with freeing slaves, et cetera, et cetera. And when I'm imagining Abraham Lincoln's birthplace, I'm thinking, you know, log cabin. Everybody knows Abraham Lincoln grew up in a log cabin. He had to chop wood. He read by the fire, came from very humble beginnings, et cetera. So I'm thinking, oh, okay, well, his birthplace, I didn't know it was in Kentucky, first of all, but it must be in the middle of the woods somewhere. It's interesting that they were able to preserve his log cabin after all these years. And maybe it would be interesting to go and see Abraham Lincoln's birthplace. Meanwhile, the billboards are still coming, you know, two miles, exit 50. And so we took a family vote and we decided that we were going to go see Abraham Lincoln's birthplace. So we get off at exit 50 and we're driving and I'm expecting us at some point to have to go off road to go into the middle of the woods to see this birthplace. At the very least, it's like some sort of national park situation where they chop down all the trees that were surrounded and you just see this log cabin with a little bit of a parking lot that you have to park in and then walk over to it. And to our surprise, we get closer and closer. You know, there's these billboards sort of directing us to the Abraham Lincoln's birthplace. And we get to this parking lot. And in the parking lot is this big sort of box retail looking structure, kind of like a Lowe's or a Home Depot or something like that. Like there's nothing, there's no woods, there's no trees, there's no nothing around that's rustic. It's all just pretty modern stuff, almost like a strip mall. So we pull in, there's not many cars in the parking lot and we park and we get out and we go up to the front of the building and there's this little ticket booth and someone is at the ticket booth selling the tickets to Abraham Lincoln's birthplace. And it's like tinted glass. So you can't really see inside. And we pay the little, whatever, seven to $8 a person to go into Abraham Lincoln's birthplace. And we open the door as if we're walking into a TJ Maxx or something. And we go into this big structure. It looks like almost like an airplane hangar or something. We walk in and in the middle of this big gigantic room is this log cabin that has velvet ropes coordinating it off. So you can't go inside of it or anything like that. You can go right up to it and you can look at it, but you can't go inside of it. So we walk up to it. You know, We have our little brochures in hand and you can look inside and you can see there's like an ax, there's like a little desk, there's like a little bed, there's a little fireplace, right? There's some wood that would go in the fireplace. They have all the little artifacts from Abraham Lincoln's adolescent years or whatever. And it's a log cabin and it looked like it was pretty well kept, pretty well kept log cabin. So then there's this tour guide person that comes over 
And he starts telling us, you know, all the backstory of Abraham Lincoln and how he was born in such and such year and he lived in the woods and da da da. da and this is the axe. Da, da. And so I have always been naturally super curious, more so than just the average person who may hear some information and just think, oh, that's interesting. I want to know the backstory of all that information as evidence by the interviews that I do on this podcast. So I'm asking the tour guy, how is this log cabin so well preserved after all these years? It's been, it's been over a hundred years. First of all, how did you even find and identify the log cabin? And then how did you, how were you guys able to preserve it so well? And so after a little bit of digging, come to find out the log cabin was so well preserved because they had just reconstructed the log cabin and put it inside of this warehouse. Because I was thinking initially, okay, they built the warehouse around where the log cabin actually was. They go, no, no, this is not actually the location of the log cabin. Log cabin was actually located 15 miles away in these woods, but it was inaccessible. So we brought it here. We took it apart and we brought it here. It's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And so these are actually the logs that were used and you guys just took it apart and then reassembled it like Legos. Well, actually, we got logs from the same woods that Abraham Lincoln's log cabin was in because after all these years, as you can imagine, the thing deteriorated and wood does not last so long in the wild. So we did our best to represent what the cabin would have looked like back in Abraham Lincoln's time. I'm looking at, what about the axe and the little spectacles and the little chimney? Is that a part of the original structure? Well, actually, no one ever discovered the original structure. So these are all replications of what Lincoln has described in his biography and his books and what we've been able to put together as historians, etc. To cut a long story short, nothing in this museum was actually real. It wasn't actually from the original birthplace of Lincoln. The whole thing was a story. And I'm not saying that they made it up. They based that story on historical facts. Obviously, if Lincoln is the president, people are going to know a lot more about his life than some regular person's life who wasn't president. But the way they originally presented it was a lot different from what it actually was. And this is the value of asking questions. And this is something that I, again, I've been obsessed with over the years. And for those of you who were getting my weekly newsletter, which I'm no longer doing because I've merged all my newsletters now into one newsletter, but for a few years, I was putting out a weekly newsletter. And to open each of my newsletters, I would start with this little riddle. And the riddle would be just something that we're all familiar with, but it has an interesting backstory. Something like clouds, right? What's the backstory of clouds? Oh, actually, the average cloud weighs a million pounds, or the average cloud is actually a mile and a half long, or the clouds don't exist above a certain height in the sky, you know, things like that. So I would give the facts first. And then at the very bottom of the newsletter, you would see the answer to whatever the facts were describing. 
And through that process every week, week after week of just choosing a subject, and I would just choose it based on what I was naturally curious about. So during the leap year, one year, you know, February 29th, I would go, okay, that's interesting. How long has that been a thing? How did it come about? And I would look up the backstory and it would always be shocking how arbitrary some of these things are, you know, or they were based on some sort of political agenda, or they were based on just something that wasn't as serious as we may think people were when they created these kinds of ideologies or philosophies or concepts or rules that we now look at and regard as the truth, the absolute truth or fact. And even before the newsletter, you know, one of my favorite board games, because I used to be in the board game industry, is this game called Balderdash, which is based off of this other game called Dictionary. And the way you play Dictionary is really interesting, is you have an actual dictionary and there's one person who goes through the dictionary. This is a party game. So one person's going through the dictionary and they find a word that seems like this obscure word that anybody, they would have no idea what the definition of the word was. And so then everyone would write down the word and then you would create a definition of the word. But the definition you came up with would be a definition that you thought that other people would believe was the actual definition of the word. And then the person who found the word would write down the real definition And so at the end of the round of everyone writing down their definition, the only person who knew the real definition would read out all of the definitions. And if someone voted for your definition as the real definition, then you would get points. And the first person to get whatever, 15 or 20 points would win the game. But it's really a a game about telling the story through using a definition. And it's one of my favorite games because it's just fun to come up with stories based on these words. Now, if someone studied Latin, they would have an unfair advantage because they would know that this root word means this, or the etymology of that means this. And so they would be able to understand what the true definition was. But even still, what I found was that even if you tried to make your definition sound like an actual definition, ironically, the people who, how should I put this, who were not as studied, And who would come up with these just the silliest definitions? A lot of t- it's it's surprising how many votes they would get. So, anyways, again, Balderdash was an extension of the dictionary game, and what Balderdash did was it introduced other topics. So they would have movie titles, they would have dates, they would have laws, and then they would have words. So they would give you a, this random movie title, and you would create the synopsis of the movie, what this movie is about, and see how many people would vote for your synopsis over the actual synopsis of what the movie is about. And it's almost always completely different from what you think it would be. And same with laws. They would say what the law was, and then, you know, like Ruby's law, and then you would create a summary or synopsis of what you were restricted from doing in accordance to Ruby's law. So you would say something like, oh, Kentucky law passed in 1902 forbidding people from using a toothbrush at a truck at a baseball game. And, you know, just something completely random like that. And everyone else would come up with their 
synopsis and then people would vote and yeah and usually the the actual law was something completely ridiculous like that and you could just it just helps you see how again how arbitrary things are in our little society going back to my weekly newsletter one of the most interesting riddles that i ever came across was this the gregorian calendar or i forget what it's called the julian calendar this is the one where julius julius caesar basically when he was in power and during the roman empire he revised the whole calendar and i think he added something like three months to the calendar because it was only nine and a half or ten months prior to that and you know people had their birthdays and they had delivery days and appointments and debts being owed at a certain time. And all these things just went completely haywire for a year. And they called this the longest year in history. It was like 420 days or something like that. My facts could be completely wrong, but yeah, it was a longer year than usual. And that's the calendar that we all now live and swear by today. But that hasn't always been the case. So when we think about like astrology and zodiac signs and stuff like that, based on the year you were born or the month, you know, all of that really just started relatively recently in human history. You know, the fact that time was a construct that was invented by mankind when the railroad system became a thing at the turn of the 19th century, because before that, there would be differences in time from city to city, from town to town, even within the same region. And so that's when time zones were actually created. Before that, nobody cared about time zones. Very few people knew when their birthday was. And so it's just interesting because now it's like we're such sticklers for punctuality and for time. And we may imagine that, that people have always been this way. And this has always been a thing, but actually it's a relatively recent invention of humanity. Even things like, you know, sunset and sunrise. We look at the sunset and we think, oh, it's such a beautiful sunset. The sun just went over the horizon. Or sunrise. Oh my God, look, the sun is coming up. It's so beautiful. But actually, that's also a story that we tell ourselves. It's not true. The reality of that situation is we are spinning away from the sun at 1,040 miles per hour. And then we're spinning back towards the sun at the same speed on our planet, on its axis. And that's what's giving the illusion of the sunrise and the sunset. And so the point is that everything is a version of Lincoln's birthplace. On the surface, it's like, okay, this is what it is. This is the story we're telling ourselves. But upon closer inspection, it's not exactly what we thought it was. And it's not to say that that's a bad thing necessarily, because the point of Abraham Lincoln's birthplace for whoever created that, and it was probably some entrepreneur who decided, oh, you know, there's a market opportunity here. There are people who are interested in historical figures. Lincoln was born close to here. Let's just create something so we can open up this museum. People will pay, you know, $8, $9 to come in and see what Lincoln's birthplace would have looked like back in the 1860s or 1850s or whatever the hell he was born. And so the point of it was to educate. It was to educate. It wasn't an archaeological find that I originally thought it was. And it did give a sense of what those log cabins would have looked like back in those days, right? 
granted it was isolated in this big box retail looking structure, but yeah, the idea of educating and giving a sense of the size and the scale of a log cabin, it achieved its goal. But if you start asking deeper questions, then the whole thing can actually fall apart, but it's not bad or good. It's just a function of asking deeper questions. And that's kind of what life is like in general. We go through our life. We're on this planet. Again, the planet is spinning faster than the speed of sound. It's flying around the sun, you know, at hundreds of thousands of miles an hour. The sun is flying around the solar system at like 2 million miles an hour or something like that. So there's a lot of movement that's happening. And here we are sitting here thinking about whatever we're thinking about, bills, conversations, you know, the relationship that we're in. Is it going to work? Is it not going to work? So-and-so is suffering for this or that reason and I need to help them out or, you know, all of our all of our worries, all of our ideas for ourselves, how we define success in our life. That's all mostly based on surface level understanding of things, you know, a linear projection of what we think life is all about, which is, you know, we're born, we have these experiences, this or that shaped my perspective. Now I'm an adult and I'm trying to figure out how to navigate life and relationships and my health my wellness and my bills and my job and my kids and making sure I have, I'm financially stable and I have things set up for the future. And, you know, all of that is, is very legitimate. And then we have deeper truths that can sound a bit more esoteric in nature, meaning it doesn't really have roots in reality. So things like the idea of deja vu, you know, something that has happened before that I'm now re-experiencing. And I get this feeling that I've been here before. I've, I've heard this thing before. And there's no scientific studies that can prove definitively that deja vu is a thing because then we'd also have to explore ideas like past lives and ideas like reincarnation and then ideas like spirits, spiritual experiences. And this concept of oneness, like we're all connected below the surface level of life. There's this inherent connection that we've all read about in books like The Power of Now and Deepak Chopra books and Eckhart Tolle books and Wayne Dyer books. And so when we start to delve deeper into these more esoteric philosophies, you know, it's really easy to pick those apart and look for evidence at the surface level to discount or discredit this idea that we're all one. Okay, well, if we're all one, then why are people killing each other? If we're all one, then why is there so much suffering in the world? Who would choose to be sex trafficked if reincarnation was an actual thing? Or if spirits were an actual thing, or if karma was an actual thing, who would choose to have some of these really horrible experiences? Who wouldn't want to be a billionaire and be comfortable and have a mansion and, you know, a fleet of Ferraris and chauffeurs and assistants and, you know, all of the things that we now equate with success in our society?
I'm not presenting myself as someone who has the answers to all those questions, but what I have done and what I do encourage other people to do, and this is what my teaching, my primary teaching really has been about, is, well, first of all, exposing yourself to these different philosophies and ideologies, or what we can call now truths, exposing yourself to these truths. And as you consider them, whether you read about them, whether you hear them in a talk, you know, one of my favorite pastimes when I first moved to Los Angeles in early 2000s was listening to Alan Watts talks on the radio. There'd be certain radio stations late at night that would play Alan Watts lectures. And I always found those to be quite profound. And they were profound for me because the things that he was talking about resonated. In other words, when I heard them, I felt more hopeful. I felt more expansive. I felt more loving towards myself as well as towards humanity. And that's what it means when a truth resonates. So a lot of these deeper spiritual truths, the reason why we're still talking about them thousands of years after they were first elaborated upon from the early sages and the gurus who mainly lived in Central Asia, what we now call India, is because upon hearing them and considering them and contrasting them against your real life experiences, they can make you feel more hopeful about your life. So when someone says a truth like everything is happening for you instead of just to you, so that breakup that you went through, that breakup is happening for you as well as to you. And then you may ask yourself, well, what do you mean by that? How could me experiencing this heartache be happening for me? Why would any higher intelligence want me to suffer in this way? How is that helpful? Because now I can't work properly. I can't attend to my basic needs because I'm thinking about this thing that didn't happen. And I feel like I'm just a shell of myself in this period of time. And so there's two things that are happening simultaneously. There's a thing that's happening to you that is indeed making you feel smaller and more contracted and doubtful about yourself. Maybe you lost your confidence because that thing didn't go the way you thought it should go. But then we have to ask ourselves, okay, what part of me was so heavily identifying with this situation that if it didn't go the way that I wanted it to go, would create such fragility in my perception of myself? And we could make the argument that if that remains the case, then I'm always going to be reactive. I'm always going to be fragile. I'm always going to be super sensitive to these kinds of things. And therefore, I'm always going to suffer. And so the other truth is that, well, maybe who and what I truly am is a lot bigger than the person I'm in a relationship with. And the only way to really embody that is to go through these moments of heartbreak and have to pick up the pieces and have to put it all back together and have to find a way to keep moving and have to learn my lessons and have to get stronger and have to access more of my potential. And through doing that time and time again and letting literal time pass and seeing how actually time does heal the wounds that I originally felt, and I do feel a bit stronger and I do feel a bit wiser And I'm able to look back and see how, oh, okay, I was giving away my power to this person 
And that's one of the reasons why I fell apart so much is because I, I was completely disempowered. I didn't have strong boundaries for myself. So going in the next situation, I'm not going to have such a loose relationship with my boundaries. I'm going to be a lot stronger when it comes to that. And you're able to do that successfully in the next you know, several relationships, but then other things get exposed. And so then you start to see, because now you're looking for the lessons, you're looking for the ways that this situation is happening for you, not to you, because now you have language for it as a result of reading about it in these various spiritual teachings. And again, the fact that they're resonating makes you more aware to look for it. And so that's how those two realities can exist in tandem with one another. This is happening to me versus this is happening for me. And if you look at the biographies of the people historically who lived on earth, who you've admired the most, you can see that play out in everyone's life. There are things that were happening to them that just objectively are very bad things, horrible things, you know, people getting assassinated, people getting crucified, people getting shamed, shunned, ostracized, castrated, hung, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff, shot. And yet they were also able to be profound examples of truth. And as Gandhi called it, being the change that they wanted to see in the world. And you could make the argument that if they weren't so effective, they would not have had such a backlash in the society that they were existing in. And they were able to use a lot of the the backlash to get stronger, to strengthen their message, to become more prolific, more profound, and more authentic, more authentically themselves. So you you don't get to leave planet Earth without some of that suffering. And you could say that you have some suffering in direct correlation to your degree of authenticity, the degree to which you question the stories, the cultural stories that we've kind of told ourselves so much that we all now believe that it's the truth of reality. Even though if you dig a little bit deeper, it's hard to see how it actually matches up with anyone's direct experience. You know, it kind of reminds me of the study of the monkeys that had the five monkeys in the cage. And they hung some bananas at the top of the cage. And naturally, you know, monkeys like bananas. So as the monkeys would climb up, there was this ladder toward the bananas. They would hose all of the monkeys that were still on the ground with freezing cold water. So they started to make a connection. Anytime somebody climbed up the ladder, everyone else would get hosed down with this freezing cold water. So naturally, when one of the monkeys began climbing the ladder towards the bananas, the rest of the monkeys would tackle that monkey (laughs) and drag them back down to the floor so they didn't get hosed in that freezing cold water. And so they kept each other in check. And then one by one, they started replacing the monkeys. So they would replace one monkey. The new monkey would see the banana, wonder why the other monkeys weren't touching it. And that new monkey would start climbing the ladder and the rest of the monkeys will tackle that monkey and start beating the crap out of them. And so then they replace the second monkey and that second monkey would go towards the banana and the other four monkeys, including the one new monkey, would grab that second new monkey, pull him down, beat him up. And this kept happening as they replaced the third monkey, the fourth, and then ultimately the fifth monkey. 
So now you have all new monkeys. None of them had ever been exposed to the cold plunge, but they're beating up whoever's climbing up the ladder towards the banana. They don't even know why. I think that's a really accurate metaphor for how a lot of our truths are in society, where we have these truths that we just don't really question. And some of them can cause a lot of harm. And I was talking to someone the other day about the homelessness epidemic, particularly in America, and how, you know, I was I was asking her, you know, we talked about homelessness and how bad homelessness. I said, okay, let's say the president of the United States commissioned you with coming up with a solution for homelessness. What would you do? And she started thinking about it and she started giving some ideas. You know, I would educate people, I would introduce more healthy food into the homeless environments and, you know, things like that. And it's not that her answers were right or wrong, but I think it's easy to just say, oh yeah, homelessness is horrible. But when you start asking yourself the question, well, what would I do if I was the one in control of homelessness? You know, what kind of solutions could I come up with? It's not as easy. It's not as easy as pointing out the problem because the real problem may not have anything to do with homelessness. And I'm not saying this is the real problem, but just as an idea, what if the real problem was capitalism? What if the most extreme form of capitalism, the the only outcome of that is a divide between the haves and the have-nots? And what if that breeds things like the condition of homelessness? And if that's the case, then what do you do? You can put a Band-Aid on homelessness, but the real root cause is the cultural conditioning around capitalism, around how can I make things as cheaply as possible, scale them as widely as possible, as quickly as possible, even if it means destroying the environment, even if it means global warming, even if it means the destruction of the family unit, because profit becomes the God, if you will, the religion of capitalism. It's all about profit, making profit, making more money than you're spending at the expense of whatever is standing in the way of that. And the people who are making the most profit are the ones that influence the legislation, the laws of the land, which of course will support their profit-making methodologies. And then you have a police force that helps to protect property owners, that helps protect the people who are most successful at the capitalist game, and that may unfairly target people who can't afford to represent themselves in the court of law, which again, it's not a stretch to make that assumption, but that's what's happening. And as a result, you are continuing to break apart the family unit. And as a result, there's no safety net. If one member of the family may struggle with mental health or may start to behave in a more short-term way, just need to get their short-term basic needs met. And in which case they end up doing something that is considered to be illegal. And if you ever have gone through the court system, you know that legal and illegal are really just, again, stories. And it comes down to which attorney can tell the best story to get their client off. And there's a correlation between how much money you can afford to pay an attorney and and the quality of the story they're going to tell based on evidence. The more money you can pay 
the better the story your attorney can tell. And if you're having to deal with a court-appointed attorney, then you're probably not going to get a very compelling story. Instead, that attorney is probably going to persuade you to take a plea deal, which means that you're going to have to admit guilt to perhaps something you didn't do, but it's cheaper to do that and spend some time in prison than it is to spend money you don't have trying to fight the other side. And so again, it comes back to capitalism, funding police departments and funding politicians, whoever's donating to which politician is the one that gets the most influence and what laws and regulations are being reinforced in that particular area, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's all stories. Okay. And again, we can hear this and go, oh man, that sucks. We live in this world where people tell these stories that lead to things like homelessness. But the reason why I think it's good to understand this is because if we are experiencing any degree of suffering in our lives, one of the first places that we can look is not at the economy, not at whatever strife is happening out in the world. But what stories are we telling ourselves about these things? What stories are we telling ourselves about the economy, about what's possible and what's not possible for ourselves? And then we have the agency to expand upon whatever stories we need to tell ourselves that will help to empower us to be able to do more of the things that we ultimately want to do in the world. And one of the oldest stories that we tell ourselves that can stop our potential or contract our potential is the story that starts with two words. I can't, I can't, I can't run a marathon. I could never start a business. I can't, I'm too old. I'm too this. I'm too broke. I don't have enough connections. Those are stories. Those are stories that we tell ourselves. And it ends up putting a self-imposed limitation on that potential. And when it comes to the spiritual stuff, the karma, the reincarnation, the this is happening for me, not to me, you know, all of these kinds of things that may annoy us, follow your heart, follow your intuition, your heart knows what your path and your purpose is, et cetera, et cetera. You're obviously going to get contrarians who who are going to question those things and go, how do you know that? That's not true. You need to just make as much money as possible and so that you can be as secure as possible because that's how you win in this world. And it's not that one person is telling a story and the other person isn't. We're all telling stories. We're all repeating things that we have now believed to be true based on cultural stories that are being told by the people we're exposed to. So the invitation here is not to reject the idea of the story because it's all story, but to adopt the stories that empower you the most, right? When you hear certain stories and you see what resonates and what doesn't resonate, which of those stories do you feel most empowered by? In other words, When you consider an ideology, a philosophy, a tenet, perhaps of a religion, like do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and you consider that, 
how does it feel in your body? How does it feel in your heart? How does it feel in your bones? Does it make you feel more expansive? Does it make you contract? Do you feel more hopeful and optimistic when you hear that tenant? Do you feel more pessimistic? Do you lose hope, right? And again, for those of us who are more science-minded and we think we need to have evidence for everything, there isn't a whole lot of hard evidence for things like reincarnation, for things like the idea that we're all one, for things like everything is happening for us and not to us, or that you should be the change you want to see in the world. There's no scientific studies that says that these are absolutely the case. But there also, as far as I'm aware, there's no scientific studies that discount these things and says this is not the case. So because no one on the earth in a body can say definitively that there's a spirit world or there's not a spirit world or that everything is happening for you or that everything is only happening to you or that everything is connected or that everything is random because no one can say definitively that it's one way or the other, then we get to choose for ourselves which story we want to buy into, which one empowers us the most, at least for this season of our life. And making that conscious choice, it puts us on a different trajectory to one where we're just kind of moving along in agreement with the stories that everyone around us is bought into. Because you're either doubling down on your story of how things are, or you're defaulting to someone else's story of how things are, or perhaps the cultural story of how things are. And again, I'm not saying this to insinuate that cultural stories are inherently bad. There's some good in everything. And that's a story, the story of there are no bad experiences. There are only experiences that are either useful or not useful. And it's up to us to find what's useful in an experience and leave the rest of it behind. Right? That's a story. That story for me personally empowers me. And it's something that I try to be aware of as I'm out and about in the world doing my thing, whereas someone else may have an experience, the same type of experience that I'm having, and they may find themselves getting offended. The reason they're getting offended is because they're telling themselves a story that this person or this company or whoever shouldn't be doing the things that they're doing and they should know better and why is this happening and blah, blah, blah. That's a story you're telling yourself. And here's the thing, with some of those more negative stories where we may find ourselves getting triggered, what that does is it yanks us right out of the present moment, getting emotionally triggered, getting reactive, feeling angry, upset, fearful, et cetera can take us right out of the moment, in which case we're now somewhere in the past or we're somewhere in the future and we lose access to whatever else is happening in the present moment, mainly what we're grateful for. And if we can reverse that or at least practice this idea of taking what's useful, leaving the rest behind, then it makes us grateful in the moment for what we find to be most useful. And then the other stuff, We don't have to give it any of our attention. We don't have to give it any of our purpose, but it allows us to stay present. And there's value to that because being present, again, it's not an intellectual decision. Like you can't sit around and go, okay, I'm going to be present right now. Because if you're always thinking about being present, you're probably the least present person in the room. 
It's when you're completely absorbed in what's happening right in that moment. That's the person that is the most present. And that presence needs to be cultivated. And the way you cultivate it is through gratitude, being grateful for what's happening, being grateful for what you can use now in the moment or for what you can find is useful and without letting the other stuff distract you all that much. So that's the value of present moment awareness. And that's the value of adopting the stories that allow you to be most present in whatever you're going through right now. So that's the takeaway from this solo episode is that when you're out and about in the world today, don't try to be present. Just be grateful. Just be grateful for what you're experiencing. And just know that if what you're experiencing is causing some degree of suffering, the way you can lessen that is you can tell yourself a different story about what's happening. And you're going to have to keep repeating this again and again and again in order for that story to really lock in and to become sort of a default mode. And again, it doesn't mean you're going to stop having emotions and stop being triggered. That may still happen, but the frequency of which you get yourself triggered and reactive will start to lessen with time of telling different stories. And again, there's no such thing as a storyless life. Even if you hear this, and you go, oh, this is all nonsense. That's a story. It's a story that you've bought into and that's fine, but just know that it's a story and that you can refine the story as much as you want. So you don't have to believe the stories that I believe. You don't have to tell yourself the stories that I have found to be most useful for me. The invitation is for you to tell the stories that empower you the most to be the best version of you. So when you think about, okay, what does the best version of me look like? Okay. The best version of me is someone who's compassionate, someone who's generous, someone who's patient. I like the idea of giving people second chances. I like the idea of seeing the best in other people. Okay. So then what story would allow me to live in those ways? What story would I have to tell myself? Well, one story is that we're all connected. Everyone is an extension of me. And a spiritual concept sounds great on the surface, very hard to actually embody that in real world. But that's something that I can strive for because when I strive for that, then I'm able to give people second chances because I see them as just like me, just having a harder time with that particular circumstance. I'm able to be more patient when I see someone as an extension of me. I'm able to be more generous. I'm able to be more compassionate, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a worthwhile pursuit is in doing whatever we have to do to re-indoctrinate ourselves into these new stories of what we feel will empower us the most. And we all get to do it. And, and one visual, and I talk about this in my book, Travel Light, I think it's in the principle, freedom of choicelessness, which is the last principle of the book, just before the conclusion, I talk about envisioning the end of your life, your funeral and the eulogy part of the funeral and having people come up one by one and saying what they appreciate about you when they look at the totality of your life. And, you know, for those of us who've been at funerals, who've heard eulogies, no one ever talks about, okay, this person got so many bonuses. They made so much money. They drove these cars. No one talks about that. No one mentions that. No one cares about that. What people talk about is the fact that you gave them a second chance or you help them to stay positive in a dark situation, or you were there for them in a way that no one else was there for them, right? So when you think about that, 
and you think about what you would want people to say about you at the end of your life, then that's an indication of what your most authentic self actually looks like. So then what stories would you have to tell yourself in order to embody those values, in order to express those qualities in every action of your life? And so that gives you a greater sense of intention when you go out into the world today, because you can ask yourself, okay, either this action that I'm about to do now is in alignment with those values that I ultimately want people telling stories about me one day, or it's not in alignment. And if it's not in alignment, then you give yourself the freedom. You have the freedom of choicelessness. It's not even an option. Doing that thing is not an option. If you don't want somebody telling a story about you related to that particular experience at the end of your life, then you don't do it. It doesn't matter how glittery it looks. It doesn't matter how many people are going to follow you. You don't do it because that's not in alignment with what you see for yourself in your most authentic expression. And no one's saying that this is easy work. It's definitely challenging to restrict yourself in these ways, but it's also more powerful because once you start to embody this stuff, you become more and more entrenched in your own authenticity, it actually becomes freeing. So that's why it's called the freedom of choicelessness. And it starts with, again, the stories, the stories that we tell ourselves. So play with that and see what comes up. And the stories that you tell yourself today don't have to be the stories you tell yourself for the rest of your life. That could be just the story for this week, this month, this year, this season of your life. And then as things evolve and you have deeper understanding of what it is that you're here to do, then your stories also must evolve as well so that you're not operating from outdated belief systems. And again, this is this is happening with all of us. So it's not just you, but you're just taking a more conscious approach to the whole thing, which again, gives you the ability to stay present as much as possible. And that's the payoff from all of this. Having a fluid relationship with your stories helps you stay present. Being present helps you see things that you probably wouldn't see otherwise about yourself, about others, about life in general. And that is what reduces suffering in life. All right. So take that enjoy it, play with it. And we'll be back next week with another interview for the podcast. But thanks so much for being so receptive to these solo episodes. I really appreciate it. And I'll keep them coming. Thank you for tuning into my solo episode on the power of story. Of course, I'll put links to anything that I mentioned that is searchable, as well as a full transcript of the episode in my show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash podcast. And if you've enjoyed my podcast and you're thinking to yourself, wow, I'd love to hear a light interview someone like dot, dot, dot. Here's how you can help me to make that happen. Leave a review. And the reason I'm saying that is because I reach out to my dream list of guests all the time and some of them will accept and a lot of them won't accept. And that's because of the politics of podcasting. When you have a podcast like mine that's still in its building phase, even if it's impactful, even if it's inspiring, if it doesn't have at least, say, a thousand reviews, then that tells the gatekeepers who are screening podcast invitations for their client that this podcast is not going to be worth their client's time and attention to come on as a guest. But if it has over a thousand reviews, then... That sends a message that, oh, this podcast has a very engaged audience 
and it's going to be well worth the time and attention of that potential podcast guest to come on and share their story. So that's the metric. And that's why you always hear podcast hosts say, rate and review the podcast, rate and review the podcast. The irony is it only takes 10 seconds to rate the podcast. All you do is you look at the screen of your device, click on the name of the show, which in this case is The Light Watkins Show, and you scroll down past those first few episodes and you'll see a space with five blank stars. Click the star on the right and you've left a five-star rating. And of course, if you want to go the extra mile, I wouldn't be upset with you. Just write a one-line review of what you appreciate about this podcast. And that will significantly increase the chances of me being able to get whoever I can onto this show. And we can have a profound interview and I can share with you and you can be inspired. If you want to watch these interviews on YouTube, if you want to put a face to a story, just go to YouTube and search Light Watkins Podcast. You'll see the entire playlist. And if you didn't already know, I post the raw, unedited version of every episode in my Happiness Insiders online community. There are 1,600 participants in that community all working on their happiness from the inside out, which is why it's called the Happiness Insiders. Go to thehappinessinsiders.com. Not only will you have access to the unedited versions of the podcast, but you'll also have access to my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate, as well as other challenges and masterclasses for becoming the best version of you. All right. I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me, just like you, taking a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you. Sending you love and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.